Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, General Conference McNuggets. Tonight's episode is the episode where I want to begin going over some of the highlights of the last General Conference. We are on the cusp of the April 2020 General Conference, the General Conference that will be unlike any other. Well, except for the General Conference in 1919, the General Conference in 1942, and the General Conference in 1957, as I have detailed in prior podcasts. But other than that, other than those three General Conferences, this General Conference will be unlike any other. It is the 200th anniversary of Joseph Smith's first vision, and we will wait with anticipation to see what it is that the prophet's seers and revelators at the head of this church have to say regarding that remarkable incident that ushered in the restoration of all things. And it is at this time where now it's starting to become a tradition actually, where right before the one general conference, I'm talking about the last general conference from six months ago. But before I get to the general conference of 2019 and those tasty McNuggets that are so nutritious and good for you, I want to talk a little bit about some comments that listeners to this podcast have been making over the last few weeks. So let me go here to my webpage at RadioFreeMormon.org because there was a comment that one listener had made regarding my Lost in Translation series of podcasts from the month of February 2020. And this particular listener made a really, really good point that I want to bring to your attention. Here it is. This is from a listener named J.T. Dewey. And he brings up the very interesting comment in the context of what I was talking about regarding guardian spirits and how guardian spirits were known to guard hidden and buried treasures in the folklore that was prevalent in Joseph Smith's community, at least among the treasure diggers in his community, of which he was one and his father was another. I had mentioned how it was that treasures were never found and yet people still believe the treasures were there. And the way this happened, the way their belief continued to be so strong in the treasures in spite of treasures never being found has to do with excuses and reasons that were made for why it was that even though Joseph Smith specified the location where the treasure was buried and directed people to dig, the treasure slipped away from them because somebody did something wrong. Either the rituals that were performed in order to dispel or get rid of the guardian spirit were not effective. They were not done exactly right. They were not performed with exactness, to use a phrase from President Nelson. And I had quoted from a document citing to Josiah Stoll at a trial that was held regarding Joseph Smith back in the summer of 1830. And Josiah Stoll had said, that he knew that Joseph Smith was telling the truth, that the treasure was buried there, even though he never found the treasure, and nobody ever found the treasure that Joseph Smith located for them. And the reason why is because they almost got it, but the treasure slipped away. And then the question was asked, well then, isn't it obvious that Joseph Smith was deceiving you? And the answer from Josiah Stoll was, no, I know Joseph was telling the truth because he said it was there. It's a circular kind of reasoning, but one that continually leads back to faith in someone's supernatural abilities, regardless of the fact that their supernatural abilities are never actually manifest in any real or verifiable kind of way. 
In a similar way, many modern Latter-day Saints have faith that the leaders of their church are prophets, seers, and revelators, in spite of the fact that none of those gifts and none of those offices are ever manifested, at least not to my way of thinking, in any discernible or verifiable kind of way. But I had talked about the treasure guardian, the trickster, who makes it so that no matter how much the treasure diggers perform all the rituals they're supposed to perform, it's never quite good enough and they always do something wrong and therefore they cannot get the treasure. And then I had talked later on, it was a four-part episode if you recall, I talked later on in another episode about how it was that Oliver Cowdery in section eight of the Doctrine and Covenants was told that all he had to do was ask God in order to be able to translate himself the Book of Mormon. He asked God for the translation and God doesn't give it to him. Oliver Cowdery fails to translate the Book of Mormon. And then in section nine, which is given shortly thereafter, God explains to Oliver Cowdery, hey, sorry, you thought all you had to do was ask me for the translation like I told you in section eight. But actually, you had to do something more. You had to study it out in your mind. In other words, there was something that Oliver Cowdery had not done correctly in order to translate. And it was something actually that he was never told he had to do in the first place. But now he tries. He fails. And so this other condition was put upon him as an excuse for his not being able to translate, an excuse that he was never told about before he began to translate, but only after he had failed. And it was this listener, J.T. Dewey, who made this interesting connection. This is his comment, RFM. I had an interesting epiphany while listening to this episode, and I'm not sure if you had also made this connection consciously yet. The God who is speaking to Oliver Cowdery in sections eight and nine acts very much like the trickster guardian spirits that Joseph was used to interpreting the will of during his treasure seeking days. This is a fascinating connection here that JT Dewey makes. The seer would lay down all the rules either given by the guardian spirit or magic tradition, but no matter how closely the other treasure seekers would follow the rules of the seer, when the hole was dug and no treasure was found, the rules would change or some minute detail that was not followed would be revealed as reason for the treasure slipping deeper into the earth. Indeed, this is purportedly how the guardian spirit who guarded the gold plates acted when Joseph first sought them, as we heard in episode one. One is left to wonder, this listener concludes, one is left to wonder if the trickster God who interacts with Oliver through his seer, Joseph, ever truly meant to give Oliver the ability to translate through the means of his divining rod, or if like treasure sought in his early career, the promise of translation was just another con meant to increase the seeker's reliance on the seer. I think this is a fascinating insight. And indeed, there does seem to be a connection between the way that the trickster guardian spirit acts in promising that the diggers of the treasure will be able to dig, or at least the seer, with the seer stone. Joseph Smith promises that the diggers will be able to get the treasure if they just follow a prescribed pattern, which he knows what it is because he's the one who has the inside knowledge. He's the one who has the experience. He's the one who knows how to perform the rituals that are necessary to appease this treasure guardian spirit. But then when they dig, they can't find it. It slips away. They almost get to it, but not quite because somebody does something wrong. And indeed the Lord in sections eight and nine is acting like a trickster guardian spirit to Oliver Cowdery. Hey, Oliver, you can translate the Book of Mormon. All you have to do is follow this prescribed set of procedures, which is just ask of me. Oliver tries, he fails. The treasure of being able to translate slips away from his grasp. And now 
the treasure guardian spirit, the trickster spirit, the God of section nine says, hey, sorry, you didn't do it right. You didn't do something. And it doesn't make any difference that it's something that I didn't even tell you you had to do before you tried to translate. Sorry, you didn't do it right. And now you're just going to be a scribe for Joseph Smith because he knows how to do it correctly. Fascinating insight from J.T. Dewey. And before I leave the subject completely, I want to make a few additional comments because it is interesting how responsive the text of the Book of Mormon is to Joseph Smith's environment. And here I'm speaking specifically about treasure digging and treasure spirits and the fact that if one did not perform the rituals correctly, then the treasures slipped away in the ground. The diggers dug as fast as they could to try and get the plates before they could slip away and move away in the ground, but they were unsuccessful. And frequently the excuse was given that the treasure had slipped away. As Josiah Stoll said in that trial in 1830, that we had digged for the treasure and we almost got to it, but not quite. Obviously this treasure was one that had slipped away from them and therefore they could not obtain it. Now, Joseph Smith, of course, was able to find the location for these treasure digs in the same way that he translated the Book of Mormon by putting his seer stone into a hat. And in this darkened space inside the hat, the seer stone was able to glow and shine. And in that illumination, Joseph Smith was able to either see the place where the treasure was buried, or later he was able to see the words which he dictated, which formed the text of the Book of Mormon as we have it today. Now, we know that in Alma chapter 37, it talks about a stone named Gazelem, which shall shine forth in a dark place and which shall reveal the hidden works of those who do evil. This appears to be a reference to Joseph Smith's manner of dictating the Book of Mormon and also his method of locating buried treasure. We also know about the famous story in the Book of Mormon where the finger of the Lord came out and touched the stones that the brother of Jared had presented before the Lord so that he could touch them and make them glow, make them shine forth in a dark place, which was in the eight Jaredite barges so that they could see inside the barges as they traveled across the oceans to the promised land. Once again, we have glowing stones mentioned in the Book of Mormon. And perhaps most interestingly in this regard, we also seem to have instances, multiple instances in the Book of Mormon about treasures being buried in the earth, but not being able to be found later because they slipped away from their owners due to a curse that was upon the land. And here we have the words of Samuel the Lamanite as recorded in the 13th chapter of Helaman. And this is in verses 17 and 18, where he says, And behold, a curse shall come upon the land, saith the Lord of hosts, because of the people's sake who are upon the land, yea, because of their wickedness and their abominations. And it shall come to pass, saith the Lord of hosts, yea, our great and true God, that whoso shall hide up treasures in the earth shall find them again no more. Why? Because of the great curse of the land. Save he be a righteous man and shall hide it up unto the Lord. So there's an instance of treasures being hidden in the earth, which cannot be found later because of wickedness. Later on in the same chapter, chapter 13 of Helaman, verses 30 through 32, it talks about the treasures being slippery. Yea, behold, the anger of the Lord is already kindled against you. Behold, he hath cursed the land because of your iniquity. And behold, the time cometh that he curseth your riches, that they become slippery, that ye cannot hold them. And in the days of your poverty, ye cannot retain them. 
So here, this is frequently interpreted as meaning slippery. In other words, you can't hold on to your treasures in sort of a, a spiritual kind of way. Your money slips through your fingers. We've all heard that expression, and yet here it's being used in a much more literal way. And we can see that more literal usage in the Book of Mormon, chapter 1, verse 18 talking about the Gadianton robbers that infested the land. And these Gadianton robbers who were among the Lamanites did infest the land insomuch that the inhabitants thereof began to hide up their treasures in the earth. And they became slippery. See, there's that word again, slippery, related to treasures hid in the earth. They became slippery because the Lord had cursed the land and they could not hold them nor retain them again. And finally, we have Mormon chapter 2, verse 10, where it says, And it came to pass that the Nephites began to repent of their iniquity and began to cry, even as had been prophesied by Samuel the prophet. For behold, no man could keep that which was his own, for the thieves and the robbers and the murderers and the magic art and the witchcraft which was in the land. So is that talking about robbers stealing their things, and that's why it is that these Nephites could not keep what was their own, or does it have more to do with the magic art, as is suggested in earlier verses that I've read having to do with the curse that is upon the land? So in this way, the Book of Mormon seems to describe a situation among the Nephites that is remarkably like the situation that Joseph Smith is experiencing, up to and including using stones in order to translate stones that glow in darkness and make dark places light and reveal hidden acts of people to the public through the process of translation, apparently, and also, and also, up to and including the idea of treasures slipping away in the earth, that people would bury their treasures up and they couldn't find them later, even though they would seek for them because they had slipped away in the earth, something that sounds very much like Joseph Smith's treasure digging activities. And this is why it is, I say, the Book of Mormon, in and amongst its narrative of the Nephites, has details in it that remarkably resemble the activities of Joseph Smith in early 19th century upstate New York. Going on now with this next comment that I want to address from another listener on a more recent podcast called Backdating Prophecy. That's episode 130. And here a listener named Tony asks a question, and this is what Tony says. The biblical prophecies that do genuinely impress me are those which predict the second gathering of the Jews to Jerusalem in the last days. They are quite specific in places and are very seemingly filled by events between 1900 and the founding of Israel in 1948 and onward. We know that these biblical passages were written long before the modern era. So Tony makes this observation. It's not necessarily a question, but I'm going to treat it as a question because, Tony, this is something that is very commonly believed among pretty much all Christians who believe the Bible to be the inspired word of God. And it's something that Mormons typically believe as well. And I know that I, as a Latter-day Saint, had the same impression and the same belief back in the 1980s, that the Bible must be true in the sense that there are prophecies in it of Israel being scattered and Israel being gathered again. And that this prophecy began to be fulfilled with the scattering during the diaspora of the Jews after the Roman destruction of Jerusalem in 70 CE. The Romans under Titus destroyed Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple. The Jews were scattered to different nations. And then after 1900 years, miraculously, the Jews not only were preserved as a people with their own individual culture and identity in these different countries to which they had been dispersed, but through a confluence of amazing events, they were returned to their original homeland and reestablished and gathered again 
in Israel in 1948. So I want to take a little bit of time to describe to you how it is that I ended up discarding that belief and why it is that after I learned more about the Bible, I realized that this was simply under the heading of coincidence and that the prophecies in the Bible of the Jews being scattered and gathered really had nothing to do with the scattering of Israel under the Romans and the gathering of Israel in the 1940s. So here I have to go through just a little bit of history. Now this is important history, it's just a thumbnail sketch of Jewish history during a period in the Bible from basically 721 BC down to around 530 BCE. Those 200 years are extremely important. And the thumbnail sketch is this. At this point in Jewish history, the Jewish nation was divided into two separate nations with two separate kings. You'll remember that prior to this, David had managed to establish one kingdom over all of Israel. And he was the king over all of Israel. He was sort of like King Arthur. He was able to get all these warring factions and all these different clans to come together under his leadership. And he was able to do that. So that was the house of David and the kingdom of David. Now, David has a son named Solomon and Solomon takes over for David and Solomon is the king over the United Kingdom, all 12 tribes of Israel in one nation. But now Solomon has a son and that son's name, if my recollection and memory of Bible history is correct, was named Rehoboam. And under Rehoboam, there are problems that arise. And according to the Bible, it's because Rehoboam really lays on the taxes on the people. And a lot of these people and a lot of these tribes are not happy about the taxes that Rehoboam is laying on them. And so they start to get dissatisfied with his kingship. What ends up happening is that because of the dissatisfaction, there is a rift and a split that happens among the tribes of Israel. And two separate kingdoms are created. There's a kingdom on the north, which is named Israel, which is led by a different king. And I believe that was Jeroboam. So that's easy to get confused. Rehoboam on the south, Jeroboam on the north. But Jeroboam was the king up there in the northern kingdom of Israel. The capital of that kingdom was Samaria. Down in the south, the Davidic house continued to reign on the throne and the southern kingdom was called Judah and the capital of Judah was Jerusalem. Now, in approximately 721 BCE, Assyria is the big empire on the block. It's the big kid on the block and it's going forward and it is amassing its empire by collecting within it all these other kingdoms and all these other countries. And they come marching down toward Israel and they come marching down to Judah. And what ends up happening is that in approximately 721 or 722 BCE, the Assyrian Empire destroys and captures the northern kingdom of Israel. By the way, the tribes were split up that there were 10 tribes that went to Israel and that separated from Judah in this civil split that I talked about. Ten tribes in Israel, two tribes were down in Judah. And if memory serves, the two tribes in Judah were Judah, of course, and Benjamin. And then, of course, there was also Levi because Levi was at the temple. The tribe of Levi officiated at the temple. And so Levi was also associated with the southern tribe of Judah. But there were ten tribes. The other ten tribes were in the northern kingdom. So when Assyria comes down in 721 B.C., and destroys the northern kingdom and takes them captive, now that becomes the foundation for the legend of the lost 10 tribes of Israel. There were 10 tribes in the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom was named Israel. These are the 10 tribes of Israel that end up being scattered or taken away by the Assyrians, and they become lost 
to history and then they end up being either under the polar ice cap or perhaps even on a planet that was taken out of a chunk of earth that is roughly where the Gulf of Mexico now exists. But at any rate, they became lost to history. So they were taken away and now that's the lost 10 tribes of Israel. So now there is no more Israel. There is no more Northern Kingdom after 721 BCE. And at this time, this is when Isaiah, the real Isaiah, the first Isaiah, is living, but he's not living in the northern kingdom. He's living in the southern kingdom. And he is talking to kings like Hezekiah. I think that he serves under four different kings and he is a prophet to all of them. And what happens now is that Assyria, of course, is not content with the northern kingdom. Assyria keeps moving south with the armies down to Jerusalem and they camp against Jerusalem to lay siege against the city because they're going to take over the southern kingdom of Judah just the way they took over the northern kingdom of Israel. But a miracle happens at that time. Now, it seems that what may have happened is that a desolating scourge, I don't know, maybe the coronavirus, something like that, ended up going through the ranks and decimating the Assyrian army as it was encamped against Jerusalem. And there's a wonderful line in Isaiah where it says that, and when they woke up in the morning, they were all dead men. Now, that sounds funny because it sounds like when the Assyrians woke up in the morning, behold, they were all dead. I think really what it means is that when the people in Jerusalem woke up in the morning and looked out, all the Assyrians were dead. And there's a wonderful, wonderful poem that was written about this. It's called The Destruction of Sennacherib. And Sennacherib, this is the way I remember that the leader of the Assyrian army was Sennacherib, the poem, The Destruction of Sennacherib, has a wonderful line in it. I used to have the entire poem memorized when I was on my mission, but the wonderful line that I do remember is this, and the angel of death spread his wings on the blast and breathed in the face of the foe as he passed. So this desolating scourge that happened to the Assyrian army when it was encamped outside of Jerusalem was, of course, very naturally attributed to God's handiwork and God's protection of Jerusalem against the Assyrians. And this was attributed to an angel of death that was sent by God to wreak God's vengeance upon the Assyrians. Let me see if I can find this poem and read it to you. It's not that long and it's really very good. Let's see. The destruction of... Here it is. All right, it's by Lord Byron. The Assyrian came down. See, it's the Assyrian army. The Assyrian came down like the wolf on the fold, and his cohorts were gleaming in purple and gold. Hmm, purple and gold. It sounds like maybe they were huskies. But this is one apple cup. The huskies are not going to win. And the sheen of their spears was like stars on the sea when the blue wave rolls nightly on deep Galilee. So this is what their spears were like. There's so many of them. They're so well-dressed. They're so well-prepared for war, and they're coming to get Jerusalem. Second verse, like the leaves of the forest when summer is green. That's how many there are. Like the leaves of the forest when summer is green, that host with their banners at sunset were seen. So they're encamped against Jerusalem at this point. Like the leaves of the forest when autumn hath blown, that host on the morrow lay withered and strewn. See, they were destroyed overnight as they lay encamped against Jerusalem by the angel of death. And the angel of death is now mentioned here in the third verse. And this is the line that I remembered. For the angel of death spread his wings on the blast and breathed in the face of the foe as he passed. And the eyes of the sleepers waxed deadly and chill and their hearts but once heaved and forever grew still. And there lay the steed with his nostril all wide, 
but through it there rolled not the breath of his pride. And the foam of his gasping lay white on the turf. Wow, this is kind of graphic. And cold as the spray of the rock-beating surf. So that's what the spray is of the horse that lay gasping on the turf is doing. The foam is cold as the spray of the rock-beating surf. And there lay the rider, distorted and pale, with the dew on his brow and the rust on his mail. And the tents were all silent, the banners alone, the lances unlifted, the trumpet unblown. The trumpet unblown, maybe Lord Byron was prophesying the breaking of the horn on the angel Moroni on the top of the Salt Lake Temple in the earthquake last week. Well, if we can twist a prophecy in the third chapter of Amos to predict that event, I think we can probably do the same thing with this poem by Lord Byron. Going on with the poem. And the widows of Ashur, those would be the widows back in Assyria, whose husbands just got killed in the army by the angel of death. And the widows of Ashur are loud in their wail. And the idols are broke in the temple of Baal. And the might of the Gentile, unsmote by the sword, hath melted like snow in the glance of the Lord. So that is the poem, The Destruction of Sennacherib by Lord Byron. And once again, it is describing in very poetical terms the destruction that happened upon the Assyrian host as it lay encamped against Jerusalem. So Judah survives the Assyrians. They live to fight another day, but they do not live forever because another big empire is going to take over the known world of the time in the area after the Assyrians. And that empire is the Babylonian Empire, technically, once again, the Neo-Babylonian Empire. But this is the one that is ruled under Nebuchadnezzar. And now Nebuchadnezzar does to the southern kingdom of Judah what it is that the Assyrians tried to do in 721 BC but failed. Babylon is successful because there's really two ways that you can get along with these overwhelmingly powerful empires. When you're a smaller nation such as Israel, you can either capitulate and say, okay, we give up, in which case you are subsumed within the empire and they go on to fight other people who are not so cooperative. Or you can say, hey, nothing doing. I'm not going to cooperate. I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to be part of your stinking empire. And then the empire has to come in and teach you a lesson. And so that's what happened with the empire of Assyria against the kingdom, the northern kingdom of Israel in 721 BCE. And it's what happened with the southern kingdom, Judah, against the Babylonian empire in approximately 600 BCE. So that's 120 years later. So now, once again, this is in the context of me answering the question by Tony about how it is that the Bible prophesies the scattering and gathering of Israel. Okay, so now we get to the Babylonian captivity, which lasts approximately 70 years from approximately 600 BCE to approximately 530 BCE. And it is during this time that most historians are agreed is the most significant time in the history of the Jewish people as relates to its development. Because all of a sudden now, they are taken away from their homeland, they are taken away from their temple, and now they have to survive and they have to adapt to a society and a religion which has no temple now for 70 years, that's an entire lifetime, in Babylon, in captivity. And so what happens now is that at the end of that captivity, a new empire comes on the block and destroys the Babylonian empire. And that is the Persian empire, 
or the Medes and the Persians, as it's referred to in the Bible. And what happens now is that Cyrus, you remember Cyrus, he ends up getting prophesied in 2nd Isaiah, in Deutero-Isaiah, that he would allow the Jews to return to Jerusalem and rebuild their city and rebuild their temple. And they do go back to Jerusalem and they rebuild Solomon's temple. And that is what is called the second temple. And Judaism during the time of the second temple is called second temple Judaism. It's a very important time in the history of the Jewish people. But the point that I am laboring toward here is the fact that after the Jews went back to Jerusalem, now prophets arose such as Deutero-Isaiah and some other prophets in the Old Testament. And what they did was they did what we talked about a couple of episodes ago. They backdated prophecies. And they prophesied that not only would Israel be destroyed and scattered, but that Israel would one day return to their homeland to rebuild Jerusalem and to once again become a people favored of the Lord. This was a backdated prophecy. You remember that Deutero-Isaiah even goes so far as to name Cyrus as the one who's going to allow the Jews to go back to Jerusalem. And the reason he's able to prophesy of that event and even prophesy of the name of the leader of the Persians who allowed them to go back to Jerusalem is because he's actually writing his prophecy after it happened, but he's backdating it to the original Isaiah who lived 200 years before. So it is within this context of the history of Israel that we need to understand that these prophecies from the Old Testament are made. When they are prophesying of the scattering and the gathering of Israel, what they're talking about is the Babylonian captivity of the 5th century BCE. They are not talking about the subsequent scattering of Israel 500 years later under the Romans in 70 CE. And they are not talking about a subsequent gathering of Israel 1900 years after that. The way I see this, and I think the way most scholars probably see this, is that what is being prophesied of, the scattering and gathering of Israel, is the Babylonian captivity. And then hundreds of years later, the Jewish people end up being scattered again, something that was not foreseen. And then almost 2,000 years after that, they end up being gathered again, something that was not foreseen, but something which ends up coincidentally fitting the parameters of the original prophecies that had to do with the Babylonian captivity and the restoration to Israel in the 5th century BCE. And now when we look at history, we can look at those prophecies, and many people do look at those prophecies, and apparently Tony looks at those prophecies of the Babylonian captivity and the restoration then, and applies it to what ends up happening historically way after the fact. Now, frequently, once the history has gone into, like I've gone into the history here, it is common to hear Mormons and probably other Christians say, well, yeah, those prophecies were about the Babylonian captivity and the restoration in the fifth century BCE, but they have double meaning. They have a second meaning, and the second meaning has to do with the scattering and the diaspora of the Jews among the nations of the earth in the first century CE, and then their gathering back to Israel in the modern state of Israel in 1948. Well, it is always possible that that is something that is correct. It's impossible to disprove that kind of theory of prophecies having multiple fulfillments. But what I think is pretty obvious, and I think what we can all agree on, is that the primary purpose of the prophecies has to do with the Babylonian captivity and that restoration back to Israel 2,500 years ago. And once we agree that that is the primary purpose of the prophecies, I think that 
the fact that those prophecies can be applied to the way history played out with the history of the Jews subsequent to that could be chalked up to coincidence. It's possibly a coincidence. Maybe it's not a coincidence. I'm not here pretending that I know everything. I don't know all the workings of God throughout history. All I'm saying is that sometimes a coincidence is just a coincidence. Okay, that's it for the viewer mail. Let's get on to some items from General Conference October of 2019, shall we? I'm pulling up the text of those talks as I mentioned to you yesterday. By the way, today is March 25th, 2020. As I mentioned to you yesterday, when I take and copy and paste all of those talks from General Conference, from one General Conference into one Word document, it ends up totaling 128 pages of text. That is a lot of talking. So let's start with the Saturday morning session, shall we? The opening talk was given by Elder Jeffrey R. Holland. And I kind of like this talk. It was a little bit different than the talks he usually gives. It was an introduction and a welcoming to General Conference. It was the first talk of General Conference, and it was a very nice and warm welcome. I thought he did a good job with this. There were a couple of interesting things that happened with this talk, though, and things that I would like to comment on. He opens it up by talking about the custom and the practice that LDS have of raising their hands to sustain the leaders of their church during general conference. And this is the opening story he tells about a young boy, actually he's just a baby, and this baby is drinking a bottle, and he actually has a picture of this baby which he shows. And the baby is watching general conference, well as much as any baby watches general conference. And during the sustaining of the officers, apparently, he's busy with his hands, drinking the bottle, so he ends up raising his feet. Now, of course, it's just a coincidence, it's a funny story, and this is the way he tells it. Brothers and sisters, this is Sammy Ho Ching, seven months old, watching General Conference on television in his home last April. As time approached to sustain President Russell M. Nelson and the other general authorities, Sammy's arms were busy holding his bottle, so he did the next best thing. And that's where he shows the picture of Sammy holding the bottle, but his feet are raised up. And then Elder Holland says, Sammy gives entirely new meaning to the concept of voting with your feet. And that was a funny line. Everybody laughed. It was a nice way to start off General Conference. It was only in retrospect that I looked at this and I thought, you know, in the context of what is happening in the church, that people are leaving this church in record numbers, that there has never been an apostasy of this size in the LDS Church since the days of Kirtland, to use the expression of former church historian Marlon Jensen. As I say, in this context, this story is just a little bit ironic because, once again, the punchline is, Sammy gives entirely new meaning to the concept of voting with your feet. Well, the problem is, is that more and more, hundreds and even thousands of Latter-day Saints, especially the young members of the church, are voting with their feet. When it comes time to sustain the leaders of this church as prophets, seers, and revelators, more and more members are becoming dissatisfied with their leadership. More and more members are not able to see the leaders of the church as the prophets, seers, and revelators that they claim to be and that they want the members to sustain them as. And therefore, more and more members are actually voting with their feet and leaving the church. That's why the statement by Elder Holland that Sammy gives entirely new meaning to the concept of voting with your feet struck me as particularly ironic given in these circumstances. Now Elder Holland goes on and he talks about a New Testament story. This is a story about Jesus coming nigh unto Jericho and a certain blind man sat by the way begging. Hearing a multitude pass by, he asked what it meant. They told him that Jesus of Nazareth passeth by. 
And he cried, saying, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. Now, Elder Holland starts commenting on the story. Startled at his boldness, the crowd tried to silence the man. But he cried so much the more, it says. As a result of his persistence, he was brought to Jesus, who heard his faith-filled plea for the restoration of his sight and healed him. Now, I'm not going to make the obvious connection that apparently Jesus with the priesthood could actually heal a blind man and nobody with the claimed priesthood, the same priesthood that Jesus had as the leaders of the church and even the elders of the church claim to have today can do the same thing. I'm not going there. Instead, I'm going to the next comment that Elder Holland makes on the same story. Because what's interesting to me is how it could be applied to the people who are leaving the church and voting with their feet and are trying to speak up and tell the church what it is that's causing them to be dissatisfied. And yet the church steadily refuses to listen. Here's what Elder Holland says. I am moved by this vivid little vignette every time I read it. We can sense the man's distress. We can almost hear him shouting for the Savior's attention. We smile at his refusal to be silenced. Let me repeat that, okay? We smile at his refusal to be silent. So when this man in the New Testament is refusing to be silent, that's a good thing. But of course, the church today, as far as its members refusing to be silenced, well, that's not so good a thing. Indeed, Elder Holland goes on, indeed, his determination to turn the volume up when everyone else was telling him to turn it down, it is in and of itself a sweet story of very determined faith. But as with all scripture, the more we read it, the more we find in it. And I've got to agree with this last line from Elder Holland. The more I read that scripture, the more I find in it. And the more I see what is being lauded by Elder Holland in this talk in General Conference in the context of this story in the New Testament is something that the church and Elder Holland definitely do not laud among the membership of the church. When the membership of the church who are expressing their dissatisfaction with the leadership of the church and want the leadership of the church to understand why it is that they're dissatisfied, when they are determined to turn the volume up, everyone else, including the leadership of the church, are the ones telling them to turn it down. And Elder Holland almost senses that perhaps this story could be construed the way I am construing it. So just a little bit later, he says that really the leaders, the elders, the apostles of the Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints are the ones who represent the Savior. And therefore, they are the ones that this blind man was really wanting to get the attention of in order to be healed. He says this, in matters of faith and conviction, it helps to direct your inquiry toward those who actually have some. So if you want faith and conviction, then you need to turn your questions to the leaders of the church, to those who actually have faith and conviction. And then he quotes Jesus, can the blind lead the blind? Jesus once asked, if so, shall they not both fall into the ditch? Well, there is the conundrum that many members of the church are facing. I understand that from the paradigm of Elder Holland, he, along with his other apostles, his fellow apostles, are the ones who can see. They are the ones who have faith and conviction. But more and more Latter-day Saints are coming to the realization and the conclusion that actually they can't see. They are not the ones who have faith and conviction. Well, of course, they have faith and conviction in the truth claims of the LDS Church. But when one starts to become disenchanted and disassociated with those same truth claims, then the people who maintain that faith and conviction begin to look like the ones who are blind. And the ones who fall under Jesus's statement 
the blind leading the blind, and if the blind lead the blind, then shall they not both fall into the ditch. What I think more and more members of the church are realizing is that the leaders of the church are blind, at least from their perspective. The leaders of the church are blind and nothing the members of the church can do is going to change them and help them to see. And therefore, they only have two options. Either they can be led by the blind and go into the ditch being blind themselves, or they, now coming to see on their own, can disassociate themselves from those blind leaders and go their own way, much as Siddhartha did in the novel by Herman Hesse that I mentioned in the last episode. Later on in his talk, he's mentioning investigators and friends of members who might be coming to conference. And he talks about how they might be confused by all the different vocabulary that is used in general conference. Here's what he says. Likewise, when a friend is learning about our faith, she or he, hey, look, he just put she before he. That's amazing. It went from being he only, and that's of course what we all did back in the day. And then it went to he or she, but now he's putting the she first. See, baby steps down the street. She or he can be a bit overwhelmed by some of the unique elements and unfamiliar vocabulary of our religious practice. The reason I'm reading this is because he lists a few here. Dietary restrictions, that'd be the word of wisdom. Self-reliance supplies. Well, look, this is General Conference of October of 2019. Elder Holland is mentioning self-reliance supplies. I think this is a prediction of the coronavirus and the fact that we needed to have our self-reliance supplies in store so that when it hit and when we had to shelter at home, we didn't have to go running out to the store and strip the shelves clean of all of their supplies. We had our own self-reliance supplies firmly in place. Why? Because we as Mormons listen to our prophet. He also says later in the same paragraph, referring to the love of heavenly parents. Now, that's plural, Heavenly Parents, capital H, capital P. And this is something that is becoming a theme more and more prominent in the talks in General Conference, is referring not just to God, not just to Heavenly Father, but talking about Heavenly Parents in the plural, which is, of course, code. It's not that difficult a code to decipher, but the Heavenly Parents being Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother. Now, I want to say a little bit about Heavenly Mother, because this trend, I think, is good so far as it goes, starting to make room for the reappearance of Heavenly Mother in the LDS theology, at least the theology that is talked about more publicly in venues such as General Conference. Now look, I'm not here to say anything against Heavenly Mother. I love Heavenly Mother as much as the next guy, okay? But there is a tension between the doctrine of Heavenly Mother and the church's policy toward the LGBTQ community specifically toward the gay community. Because here's the deal. According to the currently understood doctrine of Mormonism, the whole purpose of Mormonism and the whole purpose of the temple and the whole purpose of the endowment and celestial marriage in the temple is in order to get people to the highest degree of glory in the celestial kingdom, to get them to exaltation. And that has come to be interpreted now as meaning a husband and a wife, no longer a husband and multiple wives, but specifically a husband and a wife. Certainly not a husband and a husband, and certainly not a wife and a wife, but it's got to be a husband and a wife. And the reason why is because theologically speaking, in the celestial kingdom, the exalted beings are going to continue to have seed. They're going to continue to have offspring there. And that has come to be understood as they're going to continue to have sex, sexual relations 
in the celestial kingdom. The sexual relations between a man and a woman, sealed forever in a temple and exalted to the highest kingdom, is the foundation of the plan of salvation and the plan of exaltation. It is an interesting thing that when broken down to its fundamental parts, the entire plan of salvation of the LDS Church is based upon the heterosexual sex act. Everything else is structured around it. And because it's heterosexual, there is a man and a woman. There is a heavenly father and a heavenly mother. So heavenly mother is representative of the church's understanding of what is essential for exaltation. On the other hand, it is exactly the same understanding of exaltation that is causing the church to take a hard line against homosexuals being fully welcomed and incorporated into the LDS church. And by that, I mean uh, homosexuals being able to date, to get married, to receive all the ordinances of salvation and to go to the temple to receive the endowment. Now, of course, the church says, well, you can be gay and receive the endowment. That's fine. You just can't be gay. You can't act gay. You can be gay, but you can't act gay is really what they're saying. So a gay person then, in order to qualify for these ordinances and for inclusion in the LDS church, and I'll put inclusion in quotation marks there, inclusion in the LDS church has to live a life of loneliness and celibacy and not be able to share those feelings of love with another person because those feelings of love would naturally for them be directed to a person of the same sex. Well, we can't have that in the LDS church and gay people cannot be married in the temple, which is the highest ordinance. Well, the highest ordinance that we talk about other than the second anointing, but it's the highest ordinance in the LDS temple. It is an ordinance that has to be gone through in order to be exalted once again, because exaltation is based upon the heterosexual sex act. And because homosexuals cannot have sex and thereby procreate, they have to be shut out from the highest level of the celestial kingdom. They have to be shut out from marriage in the temple. And so this is how the church's fundamental understanding of exaltation not only dictates the existence of heavenly mother, but also dictates the exclusion of homosexuals from exaltation. It's an unfortunate situation, but it seems to be the case that Heavenly Mother, frequently a symbol of feminism and feminist ideals within the LDS Church, which is ensconced in the LDS Church's theology, ends up being opposed in this way, opposed to the full incorporation of homosexuals in the LDS Church. Because you see, if God were able to procreate or produce spirit children by means other than heterosexual sex act, in other words, if there were no heavenly mother, there were no marriage, there were no eternal marriage between a man and a woman in order to have that sex act occur, in order to propagate and continue the plan of salvation on other worlds, in order to be exalted, if there were just heavenly father alone, then there would be no theological problem with having homosexuals adopted and fully incorporated into the LDS church. It is because of this understanding that keeps them apart and that is making the current leadership of the church draw such a heavy line in the sand in order to make it clear that they cannot be fully recognized and fully observant within the LDS church community. Now, I hope I haven't beaten that horse to death. I just want to make it clear because this is a realization that came to me only somewhat recently. And I think that I think that the resurgence of Heavenly Mother in the vocabulary of the LDS Church, in the repetition of this phrase, Heavenly Parents, throughout many talks in general conference, I'm sure we'll hear the same kind of thing in the conference that's coming up in April of 2020, I see this 
as being done by leaders of the church, not specifically in order to re-invite Heavenly Mother back into the LDS pantheon, but as a sign of their solidification against homosexuality. In other words, they are revering and bringing back Heavenly Mother because Heavenly Mother, within the context of LDS theology, is why it is that the homosexuals cannot receive the ordinances of the temple. They are at opposite ends of the same pole, which is interesting because, of course, feminism would be a progressive idea, whether it's in Mormonism or out. Heavenly Mother's representative feminism. Homosexual rights, of course, is a progressive idea, whether it's in the church or out. But both of these progressive attitudes, one toward feminism, i.e. Heavenly Mother, and one towards homosexual rights in the church, end up being at loggerheads and in contradiction to each other within the LDS framework. Later on in the same talk, Elder Holland mentions Joseph Smith's first vision because he's foreshadowing what's going to be happening, of course, in 2020. But he talks about Joseph Smith's first vision and how it was that he was confused by all the different voices that he was hearing. And now Elder Holland is going to hit on another theme that keeps coming up throughout conference, which is addressing those who are confused or hearing different voices than the voices of the leaders of the church and hearing different opinions and maybe thinking that the voice of Elder Holland isn't the voice that they should be listening to after all. Well, he wants to set them straight. And so here's what he says. He says, indeed, skeptics and the faithful still contend over this vision and virtually all else I have referred to today. In case you, and he emphasizes the word you, in case you may be striving to see more clearly and to find meaning in the midst of a multitude of opinions, I point you toward that same Jesus and bear apostolic witness of Joseph Smith's experience. So here he's going to bear testimony that Joseph Smith indeed did see Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ. And he concludes that sentence saying, coming as it did some 1800 years after our blind friend received his sight on the ancient Jericho Road. Now, it's funny that he mentions the Jericho Road because that makes me think of his seminary video, the talk that he gave, which I did a podcast on called Wrong Roads. This is the talk where he said that when he was much younger and his son were out driving around in the deserts of southern Utah, that they became lost and they came to a fork in the road. They didn't know which road to take, or as Yogi Berra would say, which fork to take. <laughs> when you come to a fork in the road, take it. Anyway, they don't know which road to go. They both pray. They get the impression they're supposed to go down one of the roads. They go down that one road, and then they come to a dead end, and then they realize that the reason that God told them to go down the one road was so that they would know that that was the wrong road and that really it was the other road that they were supposed to go on. That's what it makes me think of when he mentions the Jericho Road. And I once again remember that the same individual, Jeffrey Holland, who openly tells a story about his receiving revelation from God, which proved to be manifestly wrong, nevertheless is comfortable in bearing his apostolic witness of Joseph Smith's first vision experience. And I am led to once again ask the question, if God gave him a revelation decades ago that he knows was wrong, why is it that he thinks that the revelation he feels he has received that confirms Joseph Smith's first vision is right? Couldn't God be doing the same thing with Elder Holland regarding his testimony of Joseph Smith's first vision as God did with him decades ago at a fork in the road in the deserts of Southern Utah? I'm not sure there's a good way to figure out the difference between the two types of revelation. 
And finally, Elder Holland concludes his talk and once again continues this theme about being there to help those who are confused and those who are maybe losing faith in the church. And if some days our vision is limited or our confidence has waned or our belief is being tested and refined, as surely it will be, may we then cry out the louder, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. And now he makes his apostolic promise. He's born his apostolic testimony. Now he's going to make an apostolic promise. I promise with apostolic fervor and prophetic conviction that he will hear you and will say soon or late. There's always that caveat in there. You see, this is like the treasure guardian spirit. There's always a caveat in there. There's always an escape clause in whatever it is that apostles promise. I promise with apostolic fervor and prophetic conviction that he will hear you And will say, sooner or later, he says, sooner or late, sooner or late, receive thy sight, thy faith hath saved thee. So you get the promise, not exactly sure when it's going to come, could be soon, could be late, could be really late, could be next life late, but it's going to come. Trust me, I'm an apostle and I'm promising you this. You can believe me. And then he says, welcome to General Conference in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. That was the part I liked where he said, welcome to General Conference. I thought this was overall a pretty good talk by Elder Holland, even though I've had a few things to say about it. The next talk is by Elder Terrence M. Vinson of the Presidency of the Seventy, and it's called True Disciples of the Savior. Now, I have paid a lot of attention to the conference talks, and I've gone back and I've listened to a lot of these talks. And when you go to the LDS.org, once again, it's churchofjesuschrist.org now. But it's the official church website and you go to the general conference section and you pull up the general conference talks and you listen to them. What I noticed was is that there is a definite pattern that goes on. And what it seems is that all the apostles get a longer period of time to talk than those who are non-apostles. I might have been sort of vaguely aware of this before, but when you actually see the time that's mentioned on these timestamps, it becomes very clear. Apostles get 15 minutes as a rule. Non-apostles, such as members of the 70, even presidents of the 70, they get 10 minutes to talk. And I see that over and over again. And of course, it makes sense in some way because they've got to be able to plan ahead and schedule things for a two-hour session of general conference. But it appears that that's the way they do it. And that is the rule that is followed. A little bit of general conference trivia. Now, in this talk, True Disciples of the Savior, the very first line was mildly interesting to me. He says, somewhat hidden in the Old Testament book of Haggai is a description of a group of people who could have used Elder Holland's counsel. Now, not only is it of some interest that actually he's quoting a scripture that is not one of these hackneyed scriptures, one of these scriptures that gets quoted ad infinitum and ad infaboredum in the LDS church and in general conference. He's going to quote from Haggai, but don't worry, it's going to be an unusual scripture, but he will use it in order to come to a very customary conclusion. But the thing is that I focused on wasn't so much the use of Haggai, but when he says that this group of people that's described by Haggai, they could have used Elder Holland's counsel. Now, the reason this attracts my attention is because frequently we get the impression and we're told by speakers in general conference that they all pick their own subjects. And sometimes we're told that they don't even know what other people are going to be talking about. And you'll recall that this is said frequently in the context of, we don't know what other people are going to be talking about. And a lot of times we end up talking about similar things, or there will be themes 
that occur, a handful, one or two, three or four themes that arise out of a particular general conference. And these are the themes that the general authorities end up talking about. And the only reason this is miraculous, right, is because they don't know what everybody else is going to be talking about. They don't get to see other people's talks. And therefore, when they come up with their idea, it's coming directly from God. And God is directing the different general authorities with the same kind of inspiration to talk about the same kind of thing. And that's how these themes arise out of general conference. Anybody who's been a Mormon for any period of time and paid any attention to general conference knows exactly what it is I'm talking about. So that is the outward presentation of what happens when the speakers create their talks for general conference. They don't know what anybody else is talking about. But if you pay attention, every now and again, that facade will be allowed to slip and we will get a glimpse into the fact that actually they do know what other people are going to be talking about. And that's what happens here in this first line of this talk by Elder Terrence M. Vincent, because he has just had Elder Holland speak immediately before him. And now he gets up right after Elder Holland is set down and he shows that he knew exactly what it was that Elder Holland was going to talk about. Because now Elder Vincent looks into the teleprompter where his talk, after it's been written and loaded into the teleprompter for him to begin to read it off the teleprompter, starts by saying, somewhat hidden in the Old Testament book of Haggai is a description of a group of people who could have used Elder Holland's counsel. Well, Elder Vincent, how did you know what Elder Holland's counsel was going to be before he gave his talk immediately before you, unless you knew what the contents of his talk was going to be before he gave it? That's the question that I have. And these are the places in general conference where we get a glimpse of what's really going on behind the scenes. And the thing that makes it interesting to me is that the glimpse of what's really going on behind the scenes is different from the presentation that the general conference speakers themselves give as to what's going on behind the scenes. General conference is presented as a miracle of revelation directly from God to the speakers, but the speakers end up showing that actually they know what other speakers are gonna say before they give their own talks and before they even write their own talks. Going on with this talk, by Elder Terrence Vincent. Oh, he brings up another theme. Well, maybe it is Revelation because they do all end up talking about similar themes, but he ends up bringing the similar theme that's going to go on throughout conference, which is we need to be aware of the internet. Internet, bad. Scriptures, good. Google, not safe. Apostles, safe. And Elder Vincent brings this up in this paragraph where he says, in a recent sacrament meeting I attended, a returned missionary quoted a father who summed up this idea perfectly when he said to his children, what we need here is less Wi-Fi and more Nephi. So <laughs> Wi-Fi bad, Nephi good. You see the pattern and it will continue on throughout general conference. The idea that the internet is bad, the internet's dangerous, but the scriptures are good and they will keep us close to God. It used to be that the internet was seen as being dangerous because of pornography, but I'm starting to wonder if actually the danger of pornography in the eyes of the church is starting to be eclipsed by the danger of information about the LDS church that is found on the internet and noticeably lacking at the official church website. And even where it appears on the LDS church website in their essays, they do their best to hide that information at least three clicks deep, four clicks deep if it's really radioactive, and to not mention it to members, to not broadcast it to members, to not have links to it on the front page, and to not announce the existence 
of these essays. And then once again, as I have shown in recent podcasts, the essays themselves are somewhat disingenuous. The essays themselves present a whitewashed picture of church history. They are more transparent than the church has ever been, but that is not necessarily a good thing when you see how far they still have to go. Oh, and it's here in this talk much later on that he quotes from 2 Nephi chapter 33 and verse 6. This is a passage that struck me a number of years ago. This is the passage that says, I glory in plainness, I glory in truth, I glory in my Jesus, for he hath redeemed my soul from hell. I think that's a very powerful statement in 2 Nephi, and it's one that we don't hear very much. And it's one that I was reading through the Book of Mormon many years ago, and it struck me with great force. In fact, this very passage from 2 Nephi chapter 33 and verse 6 is something that I used in an office Christmas card back 15, 20 years ago. I can't remember how long ago it was, but I live in a legal community. Christmas comes around, and every now and again, some offices will send Christmas cards to other offices and other lawyers in the community. I decided I would spring for the money to buy Christmas cards, and they allow me to put an inscription inside the card. And so what I decided to do was to take this passage of scripture, put it inside my card, and then give the reference as 2 Nephi 33 and verse 6. And that's what I did. I sent it out to everybody. I didn't have anybody really asking me, what the heck is 2 Nephi 33, 6? Because frankly, like a good Mormon, that was supposed to be a missionary opportunity. You know what I'm talking about. Everybody in the Mormon's world is divided into two camps, either members or prospective members. Three camps if you count apostates, I guess. But I remember this passage, and I remember putting it in that Christmas card, and I remember not hearing it in general conference. Like the book of Haggai, this is a passage that does not get mentioned very much in conference, and so I was really delighted to hear Elder Vinson quote this passage from Nephi, and then I was interested to hear it get quoted again in the women's general session on Saturday night. It gets not one mention, but two mentions. Once again, I glory in plainness, I glory in truth, I glory in my Jesus, for he hath redeemed my soul from hell. That is great stuff. That's great writing, I think. And I think this is something that when it appears in the Book of Mormon, I am led to think, hmm, maybe Joseph Smith was inspired to some degree. Now we get to the next talk, the third talk in the Saturday morning session of General Conference. It's called Be Faithful, Not Faithless by Stephen W. Owen, the Young Men General President. And here, under the subheading Spiritual Nourishment, he's going to hit this theme again about modern technology. Modern technology can be good, but can be bad. Have to be careful of it. It's like fire. It can warm your food, but it can also burn you badly. And this is what he says. Modern technologies bless us in so many ways. They can connect us with friends and family, with information, <clears throat> and with news about current events around the world. However, see, there's always this however, they can also distract us from the most important connection, our connection with heaven. Now, to the extent that they're talking about modern technology and distracting us and us being on Facebook feeds and doing all this stuff and being absorbed in this and being distracted from other more important things, I think that's true. I think that's a good message. I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing to give a challenge to the youth and to the adults as well to restrict their social network activity. I think that's probably a good thing. But I cannot help but hear underlying this message something that we hear in other talks, which is watch out for the internet because the information you get 
on the internet about the Mormon church is going to be either lies, distortions, or taken out of context. It's an interesting situation because what the LDS church does with its history when it teaches it to the members and to the world is actually what it is that they accuse the internet of doing. The reality is, is that the LDS church does a much worse job of telling an accurate version of its history than the internet does. So when I see the LDS church accusing others of doing what the LDS church itself does, I'm reminded of the words of John Greenleaf Whittier, who famously said, and my mom used to quote this to me all the time, that's how I know this. She used to say, search thyself for what troubleth thee the most in others may in thine own heart be. And here he references a talk back to President Boyd K. Packer. President Boyd K. Packer, recently deceased president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, gets a number of head nods in this general conference. This is one of them. And he says, years ago, President Boyd K. Packer told of a herd of deer. Later on, Elder Bednar is going to talk about his talk about the alligators or the crocodiles. But this is about the herd of deer. Boyd K. Packer liked to give a lot of metaphors involving animals, apparently. Years ago, President Boyd K. Packer told of a herd of deer that, because of heavy snowfall, was trapped outside its natural habitat and faced possible starvation. Some well-meaning people, in an effort to save the deer, dumped truckloads of hay around the area. Now, these truckloads of hay are going to be likened unto the information that you can get off the internet. There's a lot of it, but it's not nourishing. The truckloads of hay wasn't what deer would normally eat, but they hoped it would at least get the deer through the winter. And they were wrong. Sadly, most of the deer were later found dead. They had eaten the hay, but it did not nourish them. And they starved to death with their stomachs full. So that sounds pretty dire. There's a lot of information out there on social media. There's a lot of information out there on the internet. But if we fill our stomachs with that information, we can die from it, at least spiritually speaking. And Elder Owen now makes the obvious conclusion from this story. Many of the messages that bombard us in the information age are the spiritual equivalent of feeding hay to deer. We can eat it all day long, but it will not nourish us. And the reason he's talking about the deer dying from eating the hay, all this bad stuff that they're taking into their system to the exclusion of good stuff, all this bad information that they're taking into their system, he puts a fine point on it and he likens it to all the young people who he knows are leaving the church. And this is what he says a little bit later on. It is possible for young people to be raised in a Latter-day Saint home, attend all the right church meetings and classes, even participate in ordinances in the temple and then walk away into forbidden paths and become lost. Now, I want to stop here for a second and say what this is indicating to me is that the youth in the church are leaving the church in record numbers, and they're doing it so much that actually talks have to be given in general conference like this talk, and warnings have to be given like this warning. And this isn't happening just to kids in high school, kids in college, but it's also happening to young men and young women who have gone on missions, who have actually gone to the temple and receive their endowment in the temple. That's why he says not only do they attend all the church meetings and classes, even participate in ordinances in the temple, and then walk away into forbidden paths and become lost. He then asks the question, why does this happen? Well, that itself is a good question. And I think that the fundamental answer to that question is because the church is being found to not be honest 
in telling its members the truth about itself and about its history. It really is that simple, in my opinion. And the other aspect of it is that they proclaim to be apostles of Jesus Christ, and yet they end up acting in ways that seem to be the antithesis of the way that the Jesus Christ of the New Testament acted. Those are the two reasons, I think, that give a thumbnail sketch as to why it is that so many young people, and older people too, are leaving the church. But he asks, why does this happen? His answer is going to be different than the one that I gave. His answer is going to be the company answer. In many cases, this is his answer, in many cases, it is because while they may have been going through the motions of spirituality, they were not truly converted. They were fed, but not nourished. So the fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves that we are underlings. And the fault for these young people leaving the church is not the church's fault. It's not the leader's fault. It's not their fault for misrepresenting their history and themselves to the members of the church. It's not their fault for acting like anything other than the Jesus Christ for whom they claim to be apostles. No, it's the member's fault because they were never really converted. They went through all the motions. They did everything they were supposed to do, but still there was something lacking. They were fed, but were not nourished. They were not truly converted. Now, who is responsible? Who's behind all this lack of nourishment? Well, ultimately, the person who's behind it is, hmm, I don't know, could it be Satan? Yes, <laughs> I think that sounded kind of funny. I'm still hoarse and I think my voice squeaked there. Satan? Yes, it is Satan. It's the adversary. That's who he identifies as being behind this cunning plan to lead the youth of the church to be leaving the church in record numbers because they're just going through the motions. They're not really converted. And here's what he says later on in his talk. The adversary will try to persuade you that spiritual nourishment isn't necessary or more cunningly that it can wait. He is the master of distraction and author of procrastination. He will bring things to your attention that seem urgent, but in reality, aren't that important. He would have you become so troubled about many things that you neglect the one thing that is needful. And obviously the one thing that is needful is staying true, staying faithful, staying observant within the LDS church. Now that brings us down to the talk, The Joy of the Saints by Elder D. Todd Christofferson of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. I think that I'm going to call it quits here, and this will be one episode for today. I'm going to have to go back and spend some time editing this episode. This episode, as much or more so than yesterday's episode, it's going to require a lot of editing. For purposes of comparison, let me tell you that right now I'm up at an hour and 25 minutes recording this episode. And when you look at how long it actually is once I'm done editing, you will see how much I have to edit out of an episode in order to make it ready for prime time, in order to make it ready for publication. And my expectation is, is that I'll probably have it down to an hour or even less than an hour. In other words, I will end up editing out at least 25 minutes out of an hour and 25 minute podcast. That's a lot of editing. Even yesterday when I said I wouldn't do as much editing as I usually do, I ended up doing literally hundreds of edits. I've gotten a little bit quicker at it because practice does make perfect. And it may not make perfect, but at least it makes it quicker. But it still takes a great deal of time to do all the edits in order to edit something that is this long, 
down to something that is that much shorter. And now this is future Radio Free Mormon intruding myself into this podcast and noting that actually we are not under 60 minutes. We are actually at one hour and 10 minutes. But I want to let you know that that is largely because when I went back and edited, I added a lot of new material to the podcast in order to flesh it out. That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon signing off the air.